Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative editor with Adweek. And with me is our co-host, Sammy Main, social editor for Adweek. Sammy, how are you? Bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs> Loser. <laughs> Well, yeah, this one, I mean, the last couple of weeks, I think we weren't sure when my actual last episode would be in Newsflash. It's this one. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) She just just like knocks over the mic and walks out of the room. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us uh, for for one last episode. And uh, it's been great seeing the people on Twitter uh, kind of reminiscing about how great it's been having you on the podcast. Certainly been great for me. And uh, so, yeah, well, we're going to miss you. But everyone gets another episode of you. And we're going to be talking lots of social media because I want to squeeze as much knowledge out of you as we can before you're you're on your way out. We've also got back Yulia Kim, a recently promoted art director at Adweek. How are you, Yulia? Hey, I'm good. I'm great. So uh, tell us about your promotion. This was just announced like yesterday, the day before we record this podcast. Yes. So I've been promoted to art director um, and I will specialize in digital projects. So it's exciting. And yeah, new. that is, you have been awesome every time we've done, I mean, you, you, the stuff you do visually day to day has been great, but uh, yeah, every time we've done a really big ambitious project, uh, Yulia has been uh, kind of the heart and soul of a lot of the coolest little visual uh, features uh, using animation in cool ways and finding new ways to present Adweek stuff. So very excited for that promotion. And how long have you been with Adweek now? Um, three years. Yep. Start as an intern. Now I'm here. Yeah, started at the bottom. That's a really good media tenure, though. Like, you don't hear a lot of those these days. Yeah. We've also got back Anne-Marie Alcantara from the technology beat here at Adweek. Anne-Marie, I know last time when you were on a whole week ago, we said we'd love to have you back, and (laughs) we were not lying. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to be here again. Feel feel so touching. Got Uh, really pulled through on that promise. We, we like to not uh, not slack off on our on our promises to bring people back. Uh, but yes, because we're going to be talking so much about social today, I uh, really wanted to have you on board to share some of your thoughts about where social media is headed. All right, uh, let's get on to the news. All right, we got some big uh, marketing news shakeups happening right before we recorded this podcast. Uh, Anheuser-Busch, uh, AB InBev, as it is known now, uh, has announced that it's shifting to a new global CMO. The current one, uh, Miguel Patricio, is not uh, leaving the company. He's moving into a chief of special global projects role, uh, but uh, Pedro Erp will be taking over as global CMO. Uh, he will also be, uh, Pedro Erp will also be heading up something called ZX Venture. 
Ventures, which I had not heard of before, um, but is described as a venture capital team backed by AB InBev. Uh, and in their uh, release about all this, they said that it will uh, it will be an independent entity uh, that is, and I'm quoting here, remain ahead of the curve, stay agile, and invest in new products and experiences to address emerging consumer needs. Which I, how do you guys interpret that? I, I, to me, that's like we're going to try to buy up or invest in things that maybe are the future of drinking that isn't Budweiser or Bud Light. Yeah, it almost sounds like, um, or maybe just like new companies that like know how to package to millennials or younger people. Like when I read that, I was like, so they want the LaCroix of beers. <laughs> like they're they're on the, <laughs> yeah. the scout for, for that. That's how I'm reading it. I don't know. I'm also thinking that they might try to invest in some cannabis products just because based on people I've talked to um, – Alcohol is one of the first industries to start going that route because they know it's going to be a big money maker. Have you guys tried the Hemperer Ale from who is that? Uh, uh, New Belgium, uh, I believe. Oh, I remember that campaign. Um, I'm not really a beer drinker, so no, I have not. I have not either. That's the first time I've heard of it. Same. So, Hemperer, it's a. It doesn't have any THC in it, obviously, but it's got. It's like their whole ad campaign was about. Um, the the dankness of the aroma, <laughs> which is and uh, and and someone warned me when they handed me a bottle. They were like, "It will make the entire kitchen smell like we have lit up in here." Uh, and they 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 were not wrong. But what's fascinating is it's just the aroma. Like the flavor is actually pretty normal. It's a good beer. Uh, but man, that first like when you go when you open the bottle and you like start to drink it, it's it's something. Uh, so if you have experienced uh, the Emperor, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, we're at podcast at adweek.com uh, or you can just find us on Twitter. But yeah, I don't know. It was good. I actually enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so they'll be investing in uh, kind of new – I, I want to know what new experiences <laughs> they invest in, but I don't know. Um, so the, this move comes amid some pretty bad financial numbers in the U.S. Uh, they have seen declines in Budweiser and Bud Light sales of about 3.1% 3. in the second quarter of 2018. Uh and they're citing it's it's on low volume, so the, there's all sorts of financial things, pressures that ABM Bev is under, things like aluminum and steel tariffs. You know, all this stuff hurts their their money in the bottom line. But this is about people just not buying enough Budweiser and Bud Light, uh, and they are seeing millennials and uh, others moving away from these kind of uh, big mainstream beers to craft beers, craft options. Like my town used to have literally zero breweries. Uh, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. It was illegal to basically run a brewery here um, and to distribute. And now it's legal and we have something like 11 breweries. And so, I mean, and it's all in the grocery store too. So I really don't need to buy any kind of non-local uh, beer. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm in Alabama. Like, I, I imagine that, uh, Amory, you were in San Francisco. I assume it's it's totally off the hook there on in, in terms of those kinds of options. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, numerous breweries that you can drink of, and, like, they're all in the bars and also in the grocery stores. It's just not, like, I can't remember the last time someone bought a Bud Light there. Tecate, sure, but... <laughs> not 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 Budweiser Bud Light. Uh, Yulia, you were posting some crazy looking Instagrams from where? Where was that? Denver? Yeah, that was in Denver, Colorado. So, Colorado is an awesome place to be for many different industries. But um, <laughs> it's incredible. My 
I, my boyfriend and I are really into beer, so we like brewed ourselves. And there's kits now that you can buy, and you can just make whatever kind of beer you want. Um, but we went to a specifically sour brewery, so it's like wildly fermented, spontaneous brewing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was delicious, and it was like four dollars. Oh, it was amazing. Man. Yeah, when you were posting that, I assumed you were in Manhattan, and uh, and I was just like, oh, where is that? <laughs> Denver. <laughs> I was like, ah, go to hell, Julia. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and a thing that I think is going to be a struggle for these macro brewers is that these trends change so fast. Like, that's what I'm noticing now that we have a really big brewing culture here in my town, is that like right now, it's all sours and gozas, right? And then like a year from now, who knows? Like, and these these local brewers, they can change on the dime. I mean, not to... You know, it's a little challenging, but they can constantly be rolling out new, crazy, funky things and trying it out. And if it sells, they can shift their production to that. Budweiser, you know, Anheuser-Busch can't do that. Like they have to <laughs> they have to go big for years to come. And so it's like they're going to roll out some kind of kettle sour <laughs> and try to bank <laughs> on that for the next like six years. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a fascinating category. Uh, they are also creating a new head of non-alcoholic products position, uh, which apparently makes up non-alcoholic beer, I assume beer. Uh, I couldn't find much on their site that was not beer. Um, you know, they don't seem to own well, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't think they own much in the way of like sodas or anything. But they said that non-alcoholic products make up about 10% of their output, but sales dropped 43% in the second quarter of 2018. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, that's that's crazy drop. So, uh, yeah, so interesting to see that they're putting some focus on that. Uh, another industry that is certainly being disrupted uh, every single month of the year for the last probably five, <laughs> six, ten years is the TV industry. Cord cutting is outpacing expectations from the industry. I think the TV industry has always been super, uh, let's say, conservative on their uh, their outlook uh, of how many and how fast people would uh, cut the cord. Uh, so we've got some numbers, a new story this week. Uh, 33 million adults in the U.S. have canceled their TV service or are choosing to continue on without it. Uh, that is 32.8% of the adult population. So basically a third of the population uh, has now cut the cord. Um, it was only supposed to be at 22%. Uh, by this year, uh, according to eMarketer. Uh, so that that's a heck of a, you know, uh, being ahead of the curve in the bad way if you're TV, good, good way if you're Netflix. Uh, they say overall, 186.7 million adults uh, will be still be watching pay TV this year uh, by cable, satellite, or however they get their pay TV, um, which the number is going down. It went down 3.8% over the last year, uh, but uh, was... Uh, you know, it's slowing apparently, uh, but not certainly shows no sign of stopping. Not too surprising, probably for you guys, but do any of you still have pay TV? Nope. I, I've been using Hulu's live functionalities, uh, I don't know, maybe over the last year or so. So, yeah, no, no cable box for me. I turn, it turns out I do have cable. I just found that out five minutes ago. I just wasn't <laughs> aware that YouTube TV still counted as TV. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, with all these new services or, or like streaming aggregator type things that do get you access to, to channels, people still don't know exactly how to use them to their like fullest <laughs> ability. Like there's probably cloud DVR storage that I don't know how to access. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot to it, but I think uh, w it's at least worth it in the sense of 
you know, don't have to pay exorbitant fees on top of Wi-Fi, on top of anything else. Yeah, I actually had a family ask me the other day about cord cutting. You know, they really did not realize how essentially cheap it is because um, they were saying, well, we pay 150 bucks a month right now. Mm-hmm. How, mu- how much do you think you pay? And I had to think about it. I was like, we subscribe to three services. I think we're on Prime, uh, Netflix, and uh, Hulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may or may not keep Hulu after... Uh, you know, after Handmaid's Tales is done, uh, we're fair weather friends of HBO. You know, <laughs> when, when something's on, we care about. Like when Westworld season two started to suck, we we're like, no, nah, we're good without without <laughs> HBO. So we're quite fickle. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're paying. I don't know, like maybe forty a month, and and that's kind of on the pricier end. So yeah, it's it's certainly cheap compared to you know having the full on. Uh, big pay TV options. But uh, we will continue, obviously, to keep an eye on that. And uh, it's a trend I don't expect, you know, none of us really expect to to stop. Uh, but it will be interesting. So, you know, the, the thing is that these pay TV, uh, satellite cable, everybody, they've been doing their best to integrate with these services, with the Netflixes, uh, but they, it just has not uh, stopped it. They've got a bunch of new plans. They say they think will slow down the slide, but it will not. Um, you know, halt it altogether. So uh, certainly, you know, again, good time to be Netflix. Uh, did I ever tell you guys I used to own stock in Netflix, like when back when they were DVD only? No. Yeah, I sold it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I made I made a good amount. I uh, I lost yeah, my did job. Yeah, you sell and, it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 2005. Oh, cool, cool, um, cool. Yeah, I lost my job in California and had to afford to get a rental truck mm-hmm. uh, to move cross country and all that, just all the usual costs. So I sold, I sold my stock in two companies. Uh, one was Netflix, uh, which I, you know, I made a good profit off of, mm-hmm. but it would be worth many tens of thousands of dollars more had I hung on to it. So I sold it for a few grand. Um, and I sold uh, Green Mountain Coffee, which some of you may not know, but you may know from its new name, Kerrig. <laughs> <laughs> So the the irony being that I specifically bought Green Mountain because it was an environmentally responsible (laughs) coffee stock. It was the only environmentally coffee, you know, responsible (laughs) coffee stock. And then it eventually morphed into just the planet destroying (laughs) plastic. So I'm I I don't regret that one. Um, But uh, Netflix, yeah, every once in a while. But you know, hey, it got me here, got me resettled, and everything's been all right. But Hmm. all right, enough of. David's life story. Let's move on to ads worth watching. This week, uh, we've got two that I wanted to talk about, so we'll cover them somewhat quickly. But one, Burger King loves to do stunts uh, these days, although their CMO, Fernando Machado, uh, specifically made fun of me uh, when we had him out to be our keynote speaker at Adweek's uh, Elevate Creativity. He was like, they're not stunts. They're not st- Adweek always calls them stunts. They're, it's just marketing. It's just PR. But, uh, but come on, they're stunts. So most famously, they did their... Uh, their Whopper neutrality stunt, uh, which which won big at Cannes this year, and basically, uh, you know, they they charged people more to get their Whoppers more quickly, making fun of net neutrality or of you know the the death of net neutrality. Uh, this time they're back and they're making fun of something new. Uh, let's go ahead and just listen to the ad so that you can uh, hear the setup and then hear the big reveal. Uh, they are uh, revealing a new product called Chick Fries. Here you go. Introducing chicken fries for a buck sixty-nine and chick fries. It's the same chicken fries you love, but for way more. Cause girls like pink. What? They're two thirty-nine extra. Oh. Just because it comes in this cute new box. She's got eyelashes and a bow. I mean, not 
paying for that. You're not, no, no. I'm not gonna pay extra, I'm sorry. It's exactly the same thing, the same price. Why are you charging me more? I ordered the same thing he did. I'll literally take them out of the box today. Do you, do you not like pink? I don't I don't even want the fries anymore. Like, Would you pay extra for a pink box? Would you pay extra for a pink box? Don't have to get excited about it. Do I look excited? I don't get a about the fact that the box is pink. But when you go into the drugstore and you pay $2 more for your razor blades, do you say something then? So obviously, as you can uh, tell from that that piece, they are pointing out the price difference between products that are aimed at men and products that are aimed at women. According to our story by Christina Monlos, uh, 42% of the time, the female version of a product, such as razors, costs more than the men's product, according to the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, curious, uh, obviously, what you guys thought of this stunt, but also, since we have, you know, three female panelists and, and, and me on here, I'm curious, have you run into, do you see this quite a bit? Do you ever compare the prices? Yeah. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> it makes me mad every time because it's never, it literally is just because of the packaging and because, you know, they think women may not notice or they may be fine with paying more. And it makes me so mad every time. I mean, I don't stand there in the aisle at this point. I just assume I don't stand there every time getting angrier and angrier, holding two packs of things in my hands. Uh, but it's frustrating. So I, I appreciate it. I mean, I like these stunts and a lot of times these stunts are uh like this one in particular ended with like a call to action to like call your congress member like burger king is driving social change in a way that is not what i expected from 2018 but we'll welcome <laughs> gets us talking about it julia yeah. what do you think of this what, what do you think about this one and and it, you know is it do you think something like this is going to be effective at uh at getting people at, at drawing attention to this or actually changing anything about it? I mean, I think it's definitely creating some kind of buzz. Um, I, I love the way that they approach these kinds of issues in such a, like, duh, obvious way. Like, how could we not think that this, that these pink fries or whatever it is equates to, like, the pink tax that there are on, I don't know, razors and even, like, tampons that being, like, a luxury product, you know? Um... I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting and it's, it's cool. I, I buy men's razors because they're exactly the same mm-hmm. and they save me money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved I loved within this spot of like the woman who was like, well, I won't be paying for that. And she was like, how about I just take these out of the box and yes. you can keep the box because that's it. But, you know, I, I think a lot of women are aware. They may not be aware of the term pink tax, but I think it's definitely become just like a known thing. We we make less on the dollar yet are asked to pay more for products just because they're for women. So it's cool that Burger King is stepping it up. It's weird. <laughs> I don't know. Between that and who was it? Pizza Hut? Who was like, oh, we'll pave your Domino's. We'll yeah. pave your potholes. Like these fast food companies are just taking over infrastructure <laughs> in a way that was unexpected. It's crazy. Yeah, because it, it's one that doesn't, you know, it's one thing if even with the Domino's example, uh, their logic there was that uh, it's part of a push they're doing to encourage pickup, like pizza pickup. So a lot of their more recent uh, kind of marketing stunts and things have been about, uh, the, you know, so so they created this insurance where if anything happens to your pizza after you pick it up, like on the way home, it, mm-hmm. uh, then they'll replace it. So like if the dog gets into it or if you hit a big pothole and then they kind of can tar- they carried that thought forward and said, okay, so what 
what disrupts you driving your pizza home? Oh, the potholes do. You know, if you hit bad road, you can mess up the pizza. And they even did like a fun animation of how badly a pizza gets damaged when cars are on different levels of potholes. Um, my personal favorite was like the level four. <laughs> the pizza's just getting slammed around. It's like <laughs> you, you are driving through a war zone <laughs> to get your, get your dominance. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, so at least at a time, Burger King just doesn't really care. They're just like whatever. And they've said this very explicitly that it's whatever people care about and whatever people are talking about. Wherever there is passion, uh, they will kind of insert themselves into the discussion. You know, even though it has nothing to do with their with their product, so it's you know good good on them. Uh, the other ad I want to talk about, just because I thought this was real cool and must have taken quite a bit of planning to 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 do as a marketing stunt. When I'm sure that the creators had other things on their mind, this was the 360 degree video uh, that went behind the scenes of Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, the upcoming installment in the in the franchise. Basically, what they did is, as you may have heard, uh, Tom Cruise does most of his own stunts on the series. He's uh, pretty intense about that. And uh, so they there's a big helicopter stunt in the new one that's in a lot of the trailers where they're flying through a narrow uh, canyon and uh, uh, he ends up hanging from it, of course. And there's a big rope. I don't, I'm sure he falls a long way. And uh, and so they put a 360 camera inside that stunt. So in the helicopter with him, uh, he had to do 2000 hours of flight training. Uh, on this helicopter so that he could pilot the helicopter alone. And they, they basically mounted cameras around the cockpit so that you can't, you, so that you can tell he's in there by himself. He's not, you know, that it's all legit. Uh, they didn't do anything in front of a green screen. But yeah, so they mounted this uh, camera so you can f- be in the cockpit while he's flying through. But then they also mounted it below the helicopter so that you can be there when he falls f- down this like pretty intense height uh, and then catches himself the last minute. If they if that had just been a normal video, I would have been like, all right, good for you, Tom Cruise. But something about like the VR, the interactive, the the fact you can kind of move around and look at different, uh, you know, it's 360. It's not like it's not VR in the sense you can move everywhere you want. But I man, I'm I am not the least bit bothered by heights, and that was freaky to me. Like looking down from that helicopter and just like feeling what it must have been like for him to just be hanging for that. So, what'd you guys think of that video? I had the same physical reaction that you have when you're on a roller coaster and you feel your stomach just dropping to the bottom <laughs> of your feet. That is exactly what I felt when I saw this video, and I was very impressed by the technology, but also like very impressed by Tom Cruise. I had no idea that he was so talented. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like everything I've heard about this new movie has literally only been, you know, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. Like, that's the only <laughs> line. I, I worked from home one day this week, and I was watching, of course, live with Kelly and Ryan, and they had one of the actors on the movie, and, like, that was mostly what she was talking about <laughs> instead of this, like, award-winning actress. So, like, kudos to Tom Cruise's PR team for getting this great <laughs> storyline out there <laughs> multiple <laughs> times. Um, but that being said, he really did put in like 2,000 hours of flight training just to be able to fly a helicopter by himself. Like, that's not nothing. Uh, and, you know, fun skill to put on the, the resume now. Yeah, the, the video is cool. <laughs> I like that we're, in general, I think like everyday people are using 360 degrees a little bit more. But it was like, in order to mount that, like during the, the flight and be there when you fall, like that is, I mean, you know. 
for someone who gets a little sensitive to motion sickness, it was intense. <laughs> but it was also fascinating because you don't normally get to see that sort of look. I have this like weird paranoia about helicopters and movies specifically, um, mostly because when I was a kid, they were filming the Twilight Zone movie and they had one of the most notorious onset accidents of all time, mm. a, a really horrific fatal accident that I, I believe killed at least two, maybe three people uh, in a helicopter scene. And so ever since then, I'm just like, not worth it. Like, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't like, I don't like being near them. And I'm, you know, again, it's not like I'm scared. I'm certainly not scared of flying. I fly all the time, but <laughs> it was a, as ever if since we I was like, deathly accused you of being afraid <laughs> of flying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, it's just a hyper specific uh, thing where I just look at, I look at a helicopter and I'm like, nope. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's, <laughs> that's where it started. So I was like, watch this. Like, man, this dude, like, it learned to fly a helicopter just to do an irresponsible <laughs> stunt. But, you know, he's uh, and he's 56 yeah. years old, which is the other tier point about does his own stunts and also is five years older than Wilford Brimley was in <laughs> Cocoon. Uh, is, those are like the two things I hear yeah. the most <laughs> lately about Tom Cruise. You know what? Yeah. Uh, but I... You know, when you Google uh, Tom Cruise age, as mm -hmm. I just did, to confirm that he's 56, it's hilarious what comes up. It says, Tom Cruise, 56, Brad Pitt, 54, Johnny Depp, 55, George Clooney, 57. <laughs> I'm just like, well, maybe when like, you look up one, those are all the other ones you want to know. <laughs> It's just like, hey, look, all of all of Hollywood's fa favorite handsome actors are in their mid fifties. Um, so anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for ads worth watching. Uh, let's get on to our big discussion of the week. First, we're going to take a little little break, and then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're ready to talk about just briefly discuss the entire future of social media. Sammy, lay it out for us. You've got like 25 minutes. Just tell us the entire future. Everything's going to happen. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk uh, slide <laughs> one. <laughs> what if I just narrated a PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> T TED Talks, uh, like, do TED Talks even work? I know they have like a weekly radio show, but there's just so much like intentional silence and, and knitted hands and stuff that I just, I never know if it'd make good audio, but um Let's talk about Facebook, uh, because I feel that's the one where I am the first to admit I really don't know. It's like every few months you see a, oh, Facebook's going to tip over, Facebook's going to die. Uh, Sammy, let's just start with you as someone who um, has to live in Facebook or has mm -hmm. had to over the last few years. Facebook, while certainly declining as a traffic driver for public, public publications like Adweek, uh, it's been in heavy decline, um, and I, I don't even know the number, but we've dropped very dramatically uh, over the past few years. But what's your take on on kind of where Facebook is now and, and what its longevity potential is? Yeah, I feel like they're – I just wistfully put my head in my hands to think about the future of Facebook. Um I think they're now trying to figure out how people actually want to use their platform. I feel like they had a bunch of standard options for a while, like you can upload a photo, you can just write a, a status post, uh, eventually video, um, and then like groups and events and group chats and messenger and somehow they have like uh, chat bots and you can buy things or pay your friend. Like I feel like it got really muddied along the way. So um I think they're they're in a moment where they're trying to figure out how to best serve their audience now that they've become something I don't think the college bros who designed the platform to judge women thought it would turn into. So I, I think they've come a long way. I think maybe they realized, you know, people don't always love to see 
links from publishers, even if they've liked their pages or chosen to follow their pages, they don't always want that in their feed. I know I've accidentally like customized my newsfeed to be like mostly cool dog group, <laughs> like some <laughs> other fan Facebook groups. Like that's uh, what it tends to show me besides like some uh, photo updates or event invites and that sort of thing. So I, I think it just depends on how the majority of people actually use the platform. I feel like they're trying to shove Facebook Watch into everybody, like they used to try to shove Facebook Live in front of everybody. So I, I think they're going about it maybe a little backwards, that they're trying to force something to work when they should just be paying attention to what their audience is actually using it for and just sort of focusing on those areas. Um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, and they're in like severe legal trouble. So <laughs> I feel like they're in a, a, a sticky spot these days from, and you know, I think people are considering it to be less and less worth it. Um, that a lot of these social platforms save for Instagram, though that does cause personal stress for some people to see others living aspirational lives and all of us pretending that we're all <laughs> influencers on there. Um, I feel like a lot of platforms, people are feeling like it's just not worth the the headache or the hassle to, to be a part of them. But we've gotten to a point where we can't live without them. This did turn into a TED Talk. <laughs> um, but anyways, that's my thesis on the future of Facebook. <laughs> Anne-Marie, walk us through some of the tour point about Facebook Watch, which, I you know, is what, their long-term, I mean, the long-form video kind of channel, their, their version of TV-type shows, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, to Sammy's point about them forcing pe- people to watch it. I mean, it's worked for them before. They got people to download Messenger because they made you consistently like not be able to see your messages on the actual <laughs> Facebook app. So I understand their reasoning why they would do that. Um, but really, who is watching these shows <laughs> if not by accident? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Um, the what are some of the other features you're seeing them kind of because because you're right that you can always tell a what Facebook wants you to do. Uh, by by how they're kind of injecting it into your notifications and kind of shoving it in front of you and be also kind of what they're sliding back. I think all of us have noticed you don't get as many like so-and-so is, is showing a live video now as it used to just be this constant blast of alerts. The one that the one that makes me chuckle now is like so-and-so actually posted to their Facebook story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like the I, I add the word actually, but, you know, the, it's implied. Yeah, I think stories they're maybe trying to dial back or like they're not pushing it as hard as they did. Although every time I write, uh, I don't write that many status updates. But when I do, it's like, did you forget to add this to your story? (laughs) It's like, no, I am choosing not to. Thank you, Facebook. Um, And then something I think they're somewhat looking at is like their um, events near you or like friends attending events near you which I saw someone I follow on Twitter post a screenshot because, like, they'll tell you every once in a while, like, hey, your friends are doing this thing this weekend. Or, like, hey, there's events near you this weekend. And the person was like, yeah, I live in New York. There's lots of events all the time around me. (laughs) Thank you, Facebook. Uh, I think those two things, kind of the more social or, like, either in-person or day-to-day sort of experiences, they – uh, or at least still promoting to to me in my feed. Yulia, what's your Facebook usage these days? <laughs> um, I open the app anytime I get a notification, and even then it's not immediate. And I completely forgot about Facebook stories, but anytime I accidentally like swipe the Facebook homepage a little bit and mm-hmm. I get to that screen where it's my face, <laughs> I have this like immediate panic that I'm accidentally going to post my <laughs> 
very unflattering angle face Mm -hmm. to my whole Facebook community. Um, But I actually kind of like Facebook still just for the sake of having that network of people that, um, I don't know, I don't see very often. Like I have a lot of friends and family all over the world. So I do still like it for that aspect. And I like seeing my mom's like funny messages (laughs) and things she likes on Facebook. So just for that. But as a whole... um, I don't know. I I don't really think people are gravitating toward Facebook at all. And I think with so many trust issues now with it, too, like Sammy was saying, it's kind of just not worth it. Um, And I think that's kind of a general feeling that I've been sensing. Yeah, the you know, it'll be interesting to see how they continue to find some relevant sign. I mean, Instagram. So we'll segue into Instagram because I think that's obviously related. Facebook owns it. Um, But I, I. you know, I can't speak for you guys, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you're spending, uh, you know, quite a bit more time on Instagram uh, than Facebook. What do you? What is it about the Instagram experience that you think that you each of you thinks is just kind of more compelling or more interesting than logging into Facebook and checking everything? I feel like it's um, because it's more visual, because it's more photo driven. Still, I think as opposed to video driven on Instagram. Um, there's like less room for annoying words and like annoying (laughs) captions and like you have to expand it if it's a long caption in order to read all of it. Um, so for me, that's just kind of, um, the benefit. So at least the people I follow there, it doesn't seem like as many opportunities to fight about politics as what Facebook offers you, um, simply by limiting it. And I'm sure, um, you know, I guess with Facebook too, (laughs) Uh, it was about to turn into philosophy again, like last week when I got on a tangent. Anyways, uh, you can choose who you follow on Instagram. And I feel like on Facebook, it became very obligatory after a while to be friends with certain old friends or family members. And that just, you know, opens the door to those vampires to come right on into your news feeds. So for me, it's a more peaceful, curated experience on Instagram, even though the algorithm drives me bonkers sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think, one, Instagram always had the advantage that it started much later than Facebook, and so you were able to pick and choose who you actually wanted to see life updates from. And uh, now, I mean, I personally use it to keep up with friends and also just like a discovery and search platform. I use it a lot for shopping. Like, if I really like something, I'll search through the hashtags and see, like, okay, like, how, how do people actually use this? How does it actually look in real life? Like, does it... What does it look like? And um, it's really useful for that. And, and it's it's also good for, like, travel, inspiration. Like, it's it has such a multifaceted use that I think the company didn't see coming, but it's they're starting to realize and, and you know, working on making Instagram even better than Facebook. One of the features that I like from Instagram is, like, the um, – the places and how you can, you know, actually search like the restaurant's Instagram page, but I like going to like the restaurant being hashtagged and, you know, on like a little mm. map because I feel like that gives me the real lighting of the <laughs> restaurant <laughs> and how the food really looks and yeah. how people, you know, mm-hmm. spend their time there. But I do miss one feature that Instagram got rid of. And I don't think many people knew about it. And it was like years ago, but um, you could see your own location of photos and like oh. you had a little world map um, and they got rid of that. I love oh, that yeah. feature. Oh yeah. Well, I was being abused. 
by like stalkers oh, and true. stuff. So. <gasps> Fair enough. That's why they got rid of it. Oh my God. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I feel so educated. <laughs> Is there anything that you do not like about Instagram? Well, like I said, the algorithm. Like a lot of times when I open it, there's either two things. There's like three updates from an account I followed within the last two weeks, as if I didn't already look at those posts. Uh, and then uh, just things out of order, like from six days ago or like blah, blah, blah. Like, I feel like whenever there is an election, a week later, I see everyone's voted stickers like still in my algorithm. Uh, so yeah, those would be the two things that I'm somewhat frustrated with, I guess. But it doesn't stop me from using the platform. Anybody else? Features you don't like or wish they had maybe? I think for me, it just goes back to how crappy it makes me feel sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, like even if I've come back from a vacation or a fun trip and I see someone else has gone like somewhere more tropical or like adventure and their life just looks so much more put together, it's it just makes you feel like a certain type of way that, you know, isn't really pleasant when I want to <laughs> take my mind off of work or any other stresses in my life. Yeah, I completely agree. I think for me, it's more so about the culture that surrounds Instagram and just exactly you see like the best pieces of everyone's life. And I think even though we are all aware of that and we know that this is just an aggregation of the best, you know, pieces, I think it still doesn't fail to make us feel really crappy. And I I agree with that completely. I I had a funny experience the other day, which is probably pretty standard. We just don't hear about it on the on the back end. Is like uh, someone, you know, again, I'm I'm really into cooking, and so I love when people post their food shots. um, You know, more so at home, like like what they're trying. And I'll usually message folks to be like, "How did that turn out? What did you think? You know, what'd you learn?" And I won't name names, but somebody the other day was like posting all these great pictures, looked gorgeous, and then later uh, I asked about it, and they're like, "Yeah, it wasn't really good." (laughs) (laughs) and that's just that's the part that you don't i mean and and that's no one's fault it's not like i think anyone's trying to create a false impression it's just that that's you don't follow up and be like guys this turned out tasting like ass like like you know you just don't you don't do that because it's like no i mean you're just there to kind of be like hey this was a fun little thing and and if it didn't work out didn't work out i do think stories have helped in that regard of like the making it a bit more human you know people Mm -hmm. are a little more willing to share the the reality of what they're doing and the trips that are on versus the highly curated uh, images. Um, and so honestly, now I mostly just look at stories and then every once in a while I'll scroll the feed. Um, but the feed, I feel like the feed is often just the the best from your story, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, the most visual thing that I've already seen. Uh, well, let's talk Snapchat because of course the stories uh, functionality was stolen. Uh, I'm sorry, was, um, you know, reinterpreted from Snapchat and uh, pretty much wholesale. It, it is honestly the most just blatant uh, intellectual theft I think I've ever seen of just like, that's cool. We're going to take it entirely. Uh, I'm glad because I was never really into Snapchat. I liked the functionality of being able to tell stories in chronological order. I thought that as someone who had done social media marketing for quite a few years, that was a nice first uh, that you would think would be kind of common sense, but had never really been part of any social apps. Uh, but I was not sad to see it kind of fold in with Instagram so that I could just have uh, both in one place. Are any of you still using Snapchat? And if so, how do you decide when to use it versus Insta? I'm not using it anymore. It's been like a long time since I deleted it. Because it did feel redundant. And also I feel like the like fun magic of Snapchat wore off. Like you were saying with the copycatting or like the intellectual property theft, um, 
someone was once saying like, yeah, it's hard to sell ephemera. <laughs> like it's hard to market something that disappears within 24 hours. But then I think we immediately got used to that. Um, but I feel like it, nothing will recapture the magic of DJ Khaled being lost at sea and Snapchatting his experience. Like <laughs> that's the moment that sold Snapchat to everybody. And then I, I feel like once we all joined, nothing like that kind of ever happened again. That was also where Kim Kardashian released the like receipts against Taylor Swift, like proving that she was aware of Kanye's lyrics, which may or may not have been illegal in the state of California or wherever Kanye was recording because you recorded someone's voice without their permission. Anyways, like notable stuff happened on there. I just feel like because it goes away so fast that um, Instagram, you know, like you can, there's no profile on Snapchat, which is the the joy of it. I think a lot of teens adopted it. I remember when I was talking to people when it first came out, um, because there is no comment section, because there is no public judging of you, Snapchat became a really freeing experience for teenagers. And I think that's great. Um, but I think because there's nowhere to put your favorite photo or to to really save and show other people on on Snapchat, that's kind of maybe why it's died in in popularity. That welcome to my TED talk about Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, Sammy, I could listen to you forever. <laughs> that was fascinating. <laughs> Anyways, the what I don't I got away from the original. Oh, that's why Snapchat died. Because we all got used to it, and there's nowhere to keep your pretty things. That's my theory behind it. I, I do wonder, and uh, Anne-Marie and Yulia, you might have thoughts on this, but I, I still feel like Snapchat is more of a messaging app. I don't think of Instagram as a messaging app. Um, but Snapchat, I mean, I, like, I know people who say, oh, yeah, my kids send 3,200 snaps a day. Uh, and those that's obviously the equivalent of texting uh, versus like I don't think they think of it as a social network in the way that I think of Instagram. I, but I don't know. What, what perception do you think is out there? Yeah, no, I think you've got it. I think a lot of people are still on it because of that messaging feature. And, you know, it's used in many different ways, like not just in schools, but like if you're trying something on and you want your friend's opinion on it, like you wouldn't send that on Instagram or you wouldn't put it on your story. You want it to disappear in case it doesn't look great. <laughs> um, and I, I've, I've talked to a, a few teens, Gen Zers, if you will, uh, a few weeks ago about Snapchat. And they're saying, yeah, you know, it's some, for some of them it's completely dead and Instagram's all, all there for them. But they're still on Snapchat and they're still using it and they kind of still enjoy it. And, and the redesign that they did is, like, appealing to them and, it's not totally dead yet. <laughs> do you still have the app? I do. I, I like it for um, Snap Maps, which I know not all people are fans of because it reveals your location, but I only have my location set for certain people. And it's just fun to see where people travel to and like changing your Bitmoji outfit. It's really the lame things that I like about <laughs> <laughs> changing my Bitmoji's outfit for the week. <laughs> okay. I, I still have Snapchat as well, actually. Do you use it? Um, only when I receive things, but I don't, I don't send out many things, but I do still use it for messaging. And I find, I find that I have like different conversations on Snapchat. They're more funny maybe, or silly and maybe more embarrassing too. Um, and I just have like a couple friends that still have it and they're very close friends too, which is funny. I message them and we Instagram, we do all the other things. But for some reason, we just still have Snapchat for the fun of it, I guess. Well, we can kind of transition into uh, just some closing thoughts on – we haven't talked about Twitter, which is obviously the other big player. Um, there, there's 
you know, I think all of us use Twitter. Yeah, yeah, all of us use Twitter pretty consistently. But, like, obviously all of us are keenly aware of the downsides of Twitter and just what a hellscape it can be day to day. I am really curious both on Facebook and Twitter to see between now and November, uh, the midterm elections, kind of how they have both said in Facebook's case they've acted on this a little more than Twitter has. But they both said that election integrity is going to be a priority for them. Uh, you know, Twitter has, again, mostly said that, but they haven't really been put to the test. Facebook has maybe, and this is, I don't know if this is controversial, they've gone a bit overboard. Um, the political ads I saw during the uh, primaries, you know, had so much disclosure that you literally couldn't see the ad. Like, like, because, you know, you see the ad as a thumbnail and it autoplays and it was covered with like paid for by the committee to elect so-and-so. And then it had the autoplay like uh, captions on. And then it had some other about this ad. This ad was, you know, is for an, uh, all of that was over the image. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you literally, it's like it's like early MSNBC where they, you couldn't even see the anchors because they just put so many damn things on the screen. And so I'm just like, you may have solved this into oblivion, <laughs> like like which sucks because then you know they may put in all these safeguards, but if people stop using it because it's a bad experience, they'll go somewhere else where they can you know show their political ad without it getting completely covered by Facebook's disclosure messaging, Twitter. Again, is it's hard to tell how much is talk and how much is action. They finally got rid of some, uh, you know, what, what did they call them? Like uh, locked accounts that they finally removed. Oh, yeah. I don't know why they called them that. And it's like it, it knocked off all of like 1% to 10% of people's follower accounts. I, I think I lost maybe 1%. Um and uh, and so and celebrities lost like ten percent because it's a lot of bots and a lot of whatever. But I don't think they're really addressing the issues that people are mostly concerned about. The, the number one thing you still see Jack uh, tagged on every day is just like, please stop letting Nazis say horrible things. Um, but I don't know what. So setting where do where do you guys see Twitter headed in the next few years? I feel like it's not going to fall out of. Uh, of of public discussion, but at the same time, do you think they're actually going to be able to make any headway on making it a better experience? I've been thinking a lot about Twitter lately. <laughs> Just like I hate how much I do think about uh, Twitter. <laughs> but I, I feel like what we're all complaining about is just uh, bad humans. And I don't know at what point it's Twitter's responsibility to fix humanity and how people are bad and therefore use some anonymous license on the internet to behave worse or to give in to their like worse uh, instincts or impulses, I guess is a better term. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about it because it's a place for people to mm, share status updates and it's really useful for breaking news and like figuring out, like I've gone to Twitter when like, um, like when like manholes like pop up and explode or like, you know, something happens somewhere in, in Chelsea or Manhattan and I like don't quite have all the details. Like you search for things like that on Twitter for people who are actually there or local news and you, you find out details that way. There's lots of useful things. It used to be a fun place for fun people to make fun <laughs> jokes and now everyone's just screaming all the time and it's, uh, it's a lot less joyful and I, I think it's a, just a reflection of the mood and the personalities of, of people who are on there or what they think they can accomplish by being on there. I think we've gotten to a point where we are reliant on it for, for news and for conversations, and it's how a lot of journalists and writers get job opportunities by 
you know, either self-promoting their links or kind of joining discussions with other people. So I think it can be incredibly useful, but in the next few years, I don't know how they're going to fix just bad humans and access to their platform, but also just like get rid of the Nazis. <laughs> like, I don't know why we have to keep having that conversation. Um, that's my TED Talk about Twitter. <laughs> Anybody else? Hate it? Love it? What do you use it for? Wish it wasn't there? I use it all the time, and I mean, what I've started to do personally is just really not check it as much. I don't open Twitter at work as much. I don't have TweetDeck on anymore just because there is always something to be angry about. And that's just not, I found it to be very unhealthy for me personally. It's just like, oh, I don't need to be angry. I'd rather just enjoy my life. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think what Sammy was saying about Twitter is used for, in so many different ways and that's what's going to keep it around to get a little businessy tomorrow, they have earnings, and um, if they miss it, it might not be a totally bad thing. It might mean that they are taking action and like removing users, which you know Wall Street doesn't like because it lowers their numbers and stuff. And but it means they're taking action, so we'll see what what they how they look tomorrow. And um, Facebook also went down in earnings, but also because they are you know trying to remove fake followers, and you know I think. To Sammy's point, like, at what point do we make these companies responsible for just terrible people in the world who've always existed and just now have a platform to really amplify their conspiracy theories and angry comments? Yeah, and, there, and there's just so many. Even, even even if you start to think, like, they should just – Twitter should just not let in anybody from Russia. Like, if you wanted to say, like, full-on – ban of entire countries, which of course stinks for people who are in Russia and want to be part of a global conversation. Uh, but then, like, let's say you did that, then there's VPNs, right? Like, I mean, there's so many countless ways you can do an end run around almost any limitation they put on it. And I, I would like to think we live in a world where you could just tell people, like, just be more careful with what you believe and what you share. But even this week, like, there was a thing about the White House, you know, edited this video to take out this question, you know, at the Putin press conference. And the Washington Post was like, that's not true. This is not true. It's the same video that we got. It's just a weird quirk with the translator microphones. And theirs is the same as ours. And, and people still didn't care. They were like, no, you know, 5,000 retweets on. And so it's just one of those like that rage spiral happens so often that you can't slow it down. You can't like inject accuracy into it. It's just, you know, and so there, there's an unstoppability to it uh, that is that is depressing. And like you guys uh, mentioned, I, I turn off Twitter after 9 p.m., uh, because otherwise my adrenaline gets too high. I just can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah. Like it takes me. So I don't go to bed till midnight, but I just I need I need a few hours uh, to come out of it. I'll check Instagram. It's nice. People have dogs. Um, all right. Well, we have uh, kind of rambled all over this. I, I hope the listeners enjoyed it. I certainly did. It's just one of those things like you don't really talk about social media in social media. And so it's, it's nice sometimes just take a step back. And obviously wanted to have that conversation before we lose Sammy. Yeah, losing me. I'm just getting placed on a different shelf. No, you're dead to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. You're <laughs> See you later. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Sammy, we wish you the best. And I definitely encourage everyone to follow Sammy Bain on whatever your social media outlet of choice after hearing all this. And uh, <laughs> I'll still be there. Just may not be with bells on. 
But uh, thank you, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Yulia. Always a pleasure and excited to have you back on. Uh, and Anne-Marie, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a breather this time before we have you back on next. <laughs> uh, but uh, I hope you all have a run- wonderful rest of your week. Uh, and uh, yeah, we will be back next week. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was edited by Lane McGibney and produced by Anya Fernando. Please take a moment to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're up to like 70 reviews uh, and we're about to have our 100th episode. I'd love to hit 100 reviews uh and you don't have to i think you can just like say how many stars which is obviously up to you um but uh you know if you can leave a review that's great it means a lot to us we would love to hit 100 reviews for our 100th episode which is coming up fast uh so yeah means a lot to us and helps new listeners discover the show i'm david griner with adweek we'll be back next week 